This year, there have been at least $23 billion weather and climate disasters across the US. Those events, things like the deadly wildfires in Maui, for example, and Hurricane Adalia in Florida back in August, have set a record. One fallout of these catastrophic events is the cost of insurance, which many say is at a crisis level. For example, some data points suggest last year's premiums were up as much as 35% on the previous five-year average. It's something that's killing deals, according to Danielle Lombardo, who's the chair of insurance broker Lockton's global real estate practice. I'm Miriam Hall, and Danielle is my guest on BizNow Reports today. She's been sounding the alarm for some time about how lenders, government and industry in general needs to find a solution to the cost of insurance. Right now, some parts of the country are essentially uninsurable, and that's forcing a conversation about the subject, which has really largely been considered fairly unsexy in the past. I started by asking Danielle if she remembers a moment when she realised the situation was becoming untenable. I actually do. It was when one of my clients in Florida, large Florida developer, called me and said, we are going to have to close up shop. They've been around for 30, 40 years at this point. We're going to have to close up shop if insurance pricing keeps increasing. I mean, the the insurance increases are stripping cash flow out of deals. They're preventing deals from breaking ground. And the challenge is really the volatility, right? So even if we're quoting a particular deal 30, 60 days prior to close, We've been in situations over the past year where the pricing in some cases have doubled and oftentimes at the last minute. So I think it, the generous interpretation or the generous stats that you <laughs> that you um, just stated around 10%, 25%, and even 50 in some situations are double, if not triple, depending on the asset. So when did that Florida shop call you and say, we'll close up if we don't, if we don't see a, an alleviation or an improvement of this situation? That was a good six to eight months ago. Yep. And ever since then, I'm having conversations that mirror that exact conversation, right? It's this inflection point in the insurance market um, and really a paradigm shift in terms of how people should be thinking about procuring insurance alongside a very difficult real estate market um, with the increase in interest rates and cost rising, et cetera. So how has your job changed, say, in the last 18 months as these prices have skyrocketed all the while borrowing costs and inflation have been going up as well? Well, for me, I mean, before you were saying, you know, this insurance, this subject isn't very sexy. Um, But I would say if we were to look at the positives behind what's going on, this inflection point is giving the real estate the lending and uh, the insurance brokerage communities a chance to really bridge um, what has traditionally been a disconnect in the real real estate transaction. So as an example, typically lender requirements um, are out of alignment with reality. Uh, What I mean by that is lenders are conservative as they should be. They don't want to take on insurance risk as part of their transaction, especially if they don't underwrite it um, at the beginning of the deal. But if you're requiring 100% in named wind coverage, as an example, so that's your windstorm coverage in Florida, uh, but the catastrophe models show that you really need a fraction of that limit from a practical perspective. If your probable maximum loss says you need 10 million in limit, but your replacement cost is 40, and the difference in premium is a couple of million dollars, that's a difference between a cash flowing property and a property going into foreclosure. So what we're seeing in this environment is an opportunity for lenders, borrowers, 
insurance carriers and brokers to come together and be a bit more practical about the risk so that we're not overbuying insurance and further exacerbating the supply demand issues in the market. Okay, so in the past, or how it works now is the lenders will just say insure for everything doesn't matter where you are, or what it is just insure, insure, insure. Is that right? Don't worry about the cost. We just want a massive insurance to make us feel comfortable. <laughs> well, I think they want they they would like to protect their worst case scenario, which if I'm in their shoes, I understand. But the likelihood of that worst case scenario, according to catastrophe models, there's like a 99.8% certainty at certain return periods. Um, and not to get too technical in terms of how the catastrophe, catastrophe models work, but essentially it's giving you a probable maximum loss. And there are different levels of certainty. So from a lender's perspective, they have a choice. Either they're gonna take on slight business risk or the certainty of foreclosure or the certainty of not closing on a deal, right? So this is just about getting more practical. It doesn't eliminate the risk, right? I think what we have to understand as a community is that there's a lot of uncertainty from a climate perspective. Um, we have an unprecedented amount of what the insurance industry calls secondary perils, which is just a fancy terminology for all of the um, the events like wildfires in Hawaii, convective storms, we're naming winter storms, since when do we do that, right? We're doing it because there's been billions of dollars of damage from winter freeze storms. Um, tornadoes, all of these events that underwriters didn't previously underwrite for. So they didn't collect premium for the exposure. And every year the underwriters are trying to catch up with the events that are going on and trying to make money. And they haven't been able to do so because there's been so much volatility. Right. So it's actually just a business for everybody involved. You're exactly right. And I think in years past, I always joked with my clients, you know, if lenders didn't require you to buy, to buy insurance, I don't think you would. Right. Because the, think about the fundamentals of the deal. If you didn't have that expense. <laughs> right. Or they buy it to a much lesser extent. And Not also, everyone. It's also human nature to assume best <laughs> and hope. Yeah, hundred percent, especially if you're a deal guy, right? You want to go get the deal done and I don't want to have to deal with insurance. So it was otherwise very transactional for a long period of time. People were purchasing insurance at a $10,000 deductible or $25,000 deductible, transferring most, if not all risk to an insurance carrier. And it was just, it was just a line item that they had to get done and they moved on. Now we're in, I called a forced education phase where C-level at large uh, real estate investment firms are being forced to learn about how insurance works and also have to make the decision of taking on more risk themselves because the market is in such a dire place that it doesn't always make sense to transfer risk to an insurance carrier. It's not an always, it's not always an efficient use of a company's capital. So as an example, I'm working with a client right now that's paying $12 million for the first $10 million in coverage. Now, this is unaggregated throughout an annual period, so you could have 10 events. But if you look at loss history, catastrophe modeling, et cetera, the likelihood of them actually paying out that full 10 million is very low. So what organizations are doing is they're setting money aside via this universal alternative risk finance. Um, a lot of your listeners at this point probably have heard of captives, which essentially is a fancy word for putting together your own insurance company <laughs> internally. Um, but there are a whole host of other solutions outside of captives that are less administratively burdensome that allow a company to take on more risk. 
The challenge with taking on more risk, whether it be at the deductible level or buying less insurance from a windstorm, earthquake, or flood perspective, is the lender insurance requirements. So if we can get the lenders educated uh, on what is going on in the environment, align marketplace realities with lender insurance requirements, our clients will begin to really get into the insurance business. And as a result of that, they need to set up an infrastructure internally to accommodate for it. If they're now paying out the losses, they're going to be wildly interested in loss control and contractual risk management and things like that. When you say um, do your own insurance or create your own insurance business, is it more that just they're preparing for the possibility, worst case scenario, bad doomsday scenario, putting aside money. So like, okay, maybe it won't, there won't be a windstorm, but let's put aside money to assume that it is, might happen instead of buying a really expensive insurance. Is is that what you mean? Or, or is No, it- not necessarily. I think they're taking a look at their insurance program and they're seeing where there isn't an efficient use of capital. So it might be for their just fire coverage. It might be for windstorm. It might be for, you know, liability. And they might say, if I can take out that bottom most expensive piece of my insurance program and take on that risk myself, so fund for it in a trust account, there are many different ways um, to handle it versus trading dollars with an insurance carrier, that that's a more effective use of capital in the long term. Now, these different structures aren't a a one-year solution, right? So that's why I talked about a bit of a paradigm shift and inflection point in the market. This is a longer-term view, but when um, when you take a look at the potential savings over a five and 10 year period, it's substantial. It does require though a different, I guess, training. Yes. And a different psychology almost in a way too, because you've got to think about risk differently. You're exactly right. And a lot, you know, if you're a middle market real estate company who doesn't have an internal risk manager and you may not have a broker that has the skill set or the resources to act in that capacity, the most important thing is to partner with someone, whether it be a broker or a broker and a third party consultant or hiring and creating a risk management infrastructure internally. To your point, it's a change in philosophy and it's a change in psychology. I always, I've been joking, although I think it's very true throughout the past couple of years, as we continue to see rate increases, I've seen psychologically this um, movement between the five stages of grief, right? So anger, bargaining, um, depression, and we're finally at a point of acceptance, right? I think we're at 24, 25 quarters of continued rate increases. And in the beginning, I remember at least deal teams saying, well, I have a buddy that's paying less insurance and let's go, you know, let's go to their broker. Or um, the problem is when you're comparing yourself to anyone else, there's a lot that you lose in translation. And what I mean by that is there are metrics involved in benchmarking exercises related to deductible structures, loss history, and then allocated rates, meaning larger organizations will have a finite amount of premium and they will decide via typically art, not science, sometimes a combination of the two, how they're going to allocate the premium. And then you have a situation where you might have an offering memorandum that says the trailing 12 uh, insurance premiums for X, and you just don't know what that even means. You don't know what limits they're purchasing. You don't know if it's allocated versus a a carrier rate. So I think part of the psychology and the acceptance piece of this 
is proactive, consistent communication with your broker around what the actual pricing is today. Because I've seen it change day to day, week by week. That is the key to this. It's that proactive, consistent communication. And that, I guess, that volatility and that change is, as you say, what is killing deals. Um, could you it maybe, is. Could, could you maybe take me inside a deal that uh, that has unraveled and tell me a little bit about how that kind of takes place? Yes, absolutely. So um, this one was underwritten right before Hurricane Ian. Um, I think the price per door, if I remember correctly, was around 800. Um, this was in Texas. And then post Hurricane Ian, um, and this was about a week before renewal when one of the carriers pulled out, another carrier increased deductibles, et cetera, the pricing was double. And the deal just did not work. It did not work. So that was an 11th hour piece of information. Is that right? It was. And yes. Yes. And I've seen that happen a number of times in this market, a number of times. I guess it just makes a deal not cash flow positive, right? Almost. Yeah, it, tri- it's, it's, it, strips the, it strips the deal's cash flow. But what we did in that scenario is we negotiated with the lender to buy less windstorm insurance. So that $1,600 number went back down to around 1,000. So it was still higher than the 800, but it wasn't, you know, it's still, it still didn't pencil because even $200, you know, in in per unit cost can still kill kill a deal. But the way that we're um, trying to fight back is really buying less insurance. So let's talk a little bit about some of the most affected areas, Florida, California, Texas, in those areas, large providers like State Farm and Allstate are pulling out. I've read they're pulling out of California. And there are dozens of insurers that have been, been basically become insolvent in Florida. So that means some parts of the country are essentially what you would call uninsurable, quote unquote. But the thing is that people still want to build in those areas. Um, people still yeah. want to live on the waterfront. They still want offices in Miami. So what sorts of options are there for those people who want to build in places like South Florida? I mean, is it the same thing, what you're saying, create your own insurance? So what you're speaking to mostly is around the personal insurance sort of crisis and, you know, all state farmers pulling out, et cetera. Um, I do think that there is a question of insurability, even on the commercial side. And One of the initiatives that I'm pushing, particularly with the state of Florida, is a commercial reinsurance vehicle um, to attract more capital, more insurance capital into the market. And what I think Florida has missed, what they've done some really great things from a personal insurance perspective, but what they're missing from a commercial perspective is the effect on housing if people can't continue to develop as a result of insurance. And because there isn't a state-sponsored vehicle, there are situations where people just can't build and it causes and will cause an affordable housing or a housing <laughs> and or a housing issue. And so, you know, that's one of the initiatives that I'm trying to push forward with the Florida lawmakers. More short-term is around the lender insurance requirement discussion and getting lenders on board with taking a model-based approach versus this broad brush conservative approach. So the lenders are the first piece and then the policy, the laws, the government is the second piece. Yes. 
Florida's the riskiest piece of land in the world. That's not going to change, right? So, but the the climate is changing so quickly and the types uh, the types of weather events, the frequency and the volatility, I think over 90% of U.S. counties at this point have, have had catastrophes. So Florida isn't the only problem, right? There's a supply demand issue in Florida, but the real problem is some of these secondary perils, the wildfire, the hailstorms, the winter storms, et cetera. Those are the issues because they haven't traditionally been modeled. Okay, so so that's because they're happening at a faster rate than like okay, maybe in New York's a prime example. Does all of out of the blue we have biblical rain and then there's flooding? You're exactly right. Yes. Okay, okay. and that's something we, we didn't model for before. We, I mean, I guess we always thought about hurricanes. We've lived with those for a long time, but did we ever think about basements flooding in New York? Probably not. No. Yeah, I, I think northeast northeast wind and flood is becoming more of an issue. So are there lawmakers that are thinking about this really? I mean, you can't ignore it. You can't. And there's some really, there's a number of um, real estate firms that are trying to band together, um, create, there's one uh, pack in particular that's trying to, to fight this. I mean, when I talk to lawmakers at a state level and nationally, they're actually really shocked to hear of the impact of each insurance dollar increase on net operating income, and then the effect on their ability to transact a deal. Like they're they're really shocked to figure out the effect on cash flow. I think the other thing that they have been shocked about in my conversations with them, and something that I would love to push for change, is this concept that particularly property insurers are providing their quotes at the very last minute. So not only are you getting, you know, a double digit increase, but you're getting it a day before you renew. So I equate it to a landlord going to their tenant and say, I know you're, you're renewing tomorrow. I'm doubling your, your price of rent and I'm having your square footage, <laughs> right? Like it is from a business perspective, shocking that the property insurance carriers can get away with it. Now, if I put myself in their shoes, I understand they're inundated, right? Their submission flow is up and, 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 but still as a consumer, it's not right. You need to be able to prepare for these types of increases and to make decisions because if you're going to choose a different path forward that's non-traditional, you need to be able to do so with time. I think it hits home more when you start thinking about insurance and the housing crisis, you know, like, because you can put insurance in sort of like, oh, Zed's boring, you know, elevator music playing in my head. But when you put it next to the concept of people not actually being able to afford to live in certain parts of the country, I mean, that hits home. Yes. And I do think we have, we have to have a conversation around uninsurability, period. Right. So the first half of this year, we've had double the amount of catastrophe losses than that of the 10 year average, double. We've had $23 billion events so far this year. Wow. It's constant, right? It's constant. And so for the insurance carriers to show profitability, to attract more capital into the market, there's going to need to be a couple of quiet years. I mean, the challenge and why we've been in such a hard market for so long is we haven't had a quiet year yeah. in a while. It's 2020. 2020 kicked off with, I know this wasn't in the US, but I think it was really put it on the agenda as the um, the fires in Australia at the start of 2020. Yes. And then it just feels like it, we've barely had a break since. 
Right. And then the prior 10 plus years, it was quiet, which is why we were in a softer market. So that combined with increased cost of construction, inflation, the pandemic, Hurricane Ian, reinsurance prices increasing and, and, and it just, it just keeps, um, it keeps changing. So that's why it feels like every real estate owner needs to understand their appetite to take on more risk and understand what that really means. And they need to be shepherded through that process, creating an infrastructure internally to, to accommodate for it, put the people, the process, the technology in place. Because at this point in the market, in certain scenarios, it makes more sense to keep the risk on your balance sheet than transfer it to insure at $1.50 or $2. Sounds like there might be a new crop of jobs um, coming up in, in the real estate industry, or is it just people being more aware? I do think real estate risk management, absolutely. I think more um, the need for risk management consulting for real estate is huge. I think right now, real estate owners are having a hard time delineating what's a marketplace reality from broker negligence because they're hearing so much noise, whether it be from their teams or their peers, et cetera. And so a consultant can really help you delineate, is your broker equipped to do everything that is needed to exhaust all options and create this infrastructure for you? Or do you need to find a new partner? And what type of person or people do you need to hire internally to herd the cats and the communication between all of the various stakeholders, the asset management teams, the acquisitions teams, third-party managers, et cetera. Have there been any lenders that are being flexible, that are listening? And are you seeing any movement there? Absolutely. So I lead a national group of the top lenders, servicers, um, and GSEs in the country. Um, and I've had this group actually for five years. So it's really good. <laughs> this is a really good market to have those relationships because talking through all of the issues, explaining how catastrophe models work and why taking a model-based approach is appropriate and um, practical in this market, all of them are very much open to it. Um, what they need to understand is how do they cap their downside? And there are certain types of insurance Mortgage impairment is one and others that can, that can help them cap their downside in a worst case scenario. The challenge and structurally with a lot of lenders, servicers, et cetera, is there's multiple layers of decision makers that check the box in terms of if your borrow, you know, the borrower has the right insurance requirements, et cetera, and you're not always getting the right person to sign off. So making sure that your insurance broker has, has those relationships with the people that are thoughtful in their response is huge. But in this past renewal season, which was you know really February to June, we got waivers on almost every account to either take on higher deductibles or lower limits. So they are listening. They are uh, working with the community and the industry a little bit. They're working a little bit, but it varies by property. It's a combination of the credit worthiness of the borrower, the presentation and the waiver process in terms of what you're providing to them, the story that you're telling, the wherewithal of the broker to lead the negotiations on your behalf. So there are a number of different factors. I believe, although I think we're well equipped to have those conversations, I think on behalf of the whole real estate and brokerage community, there really needs to be pure reform, right? So the banks are in agreement on how they're looking at risk moving forward um, to be a bit more practical. Do you come across much climate change denial 
uh, still in your in your line of work? No, because you know I tend to focus on the data and the facts. I mean, I I just told you there was twenty three billion dollar events <laughs> so far this year. We have you know um, double the cat losses of the ten year average. There's just a lot of facts that show whether you believe in climate change or not. For a number of years now, we've had frequency and volatility and new events and regions that didn't have those events prior. So there's that data. And I kind of just stick to that data. And if you want to surmise whether it's climate change or whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to make sense of it, the bottom line is from a business perspective, the insurers are not making money. The property insurers are not making money because they're constantly catching up and figuring out what rate adequacy looks like on an annual basis. If interest rates um, kind of stabilize, there's not a huge amount of hope that that will happen, but just say they did, would that improve matters at all? Would that kind of take the pressure off a bit? It should take the pressure off. I mean, for a number of years, because we were in such a low interest rate environment, insurance companies were saying, well, we're not making any money on investment income. So we're going to focus on underwriting profit. And now that they should be making money on investment income, right? So it's actually better for them when interest rates are, are higher. They're still losing as a result of what's going on from a weather perspective. So that's part of the issue too. There's a bit of lack of transparency um, and talk track around what is and isn't profitable, right? There's two sides of the balance sheet for insurers. It's the investment income and the underwriting profit. How do the two coexist? What really, what is profitable? What isn't? Um, and, you know, how much of this is just a supply demand issue where insurers are like, take it or leave it. It's the cost for capacity, the cost to give you coverage at some point. It's not even, in some situations, I've had clients say, I want to take on a million dollar deductible and the underwriter didn't provide any premium credit to go from a hundred thousand to a million because it's just the cost for capacity. So if, if a reform were to happen, obviously lawmakers would need to be on board. Are there any particular states or any particular areas of government that you've found have been um, amenable to, to taking this kind of giant problem on? I think everyone has a lot of problems to deal with right now. It's just a matter of um, pushing it up the priority list. And I think every time there's a storm or there's something that they have to be reactive to is a good time to get in front of them to talk about what we think the options are. I think starting with that short-term solution around lender insurance requirement form and getting their getting the state and federal backing around pushing banks to do so is not going to cost anyone any money. It's going to put more risk on the lender's balance sheet, but I think we have some um, some ways to address that from a lender liability perspective. So. It's a longer conversation, um, you know, especially, you know, in Florida, they're already bleeding money from their their personal insurance um, state solution called Citizens. So it's not as if it's not as if that's been super successful, but there's got to be a way to quantify the loss in the loss in business um, from a development standpoint and a transactional standpoint with the cost to to really address the risk. The other piece of it too, and we have a lot of real estate institutions that are trying to quantify um, how insurance pricing is going to change in the next five, 10 years, which is, I almost put on my psychic costume because it's, I would never imagine we would be where we are today. Um, but 
I do think we all just need to think about risk a little bit differently because if there's the uncertainty, the risk is the risk. There is uncertainty for everyone involved, whether it be the insurer, the real estate owner, the lender, et cetera. So it's about managing that risk in a more practical way and allocating it appropriately across the lender, the borrower, the state, et cetera. As I said at the at the start of our conversation, insurance has not been considered a sexy subject, um, but it is crucial. How are you cutting through um, when there are so many big issues in our world at the moment? And you are really a big spokesperson for reform and you uh, talk a lot about the things that need to change and, and how this needs to be differently. different. How, how are you getting your message through? Well, to your point, this has become a very relevant subject. And so what I'm trying to do with all of this, you know, PR about bad news <laughs> is actually to push change and to challenge the status quo. I think the insurance industry um, has been working the same way for a long period of time, the lending industry as well. Um, and I've always seen a disconnect between the various stakeholders in the transaction, lender, borrower, um, insurance broker, underwriter, et cetera. But I think the more we can work together, we actually see that the people that are on opposite sides of the transaction, which would be the lender and the insurance underwriter, actually have the same interest in mind and the same perspective and thought process around being conservative with risk. It's the same thing. So I, I believe that we've been an extremely um, opaque and com overly complicated industry for a very long time. And here's an opportunity to bring some light to a subject and change to a process that will make things more efficient for people moving forward. Um, so that that's my passion is to challenge the status quo. It's to get people to think a little bit differently. The other piece of it that I see uh, as a challenge um, that we are, you know, diving straight into is this world of alternative risk finance. For many years, real estate owners were buying insurance at very low deductibles and the professionals in the insurance industry that are educated and are resourced around how to put these programs in place are dealing with Fortune 500 companies, very large institutions that have um, very vanilla entity structures. When you're dealing with a registered investment advisor that's SEC regulated, a REIT, um, and other complicated deal structures, the way that you're going to recommend putting in place an alternative risk finance strategy has to be aligned with the way that the company and the individual deals are structured and any compliance related issues around it. Um, compliance related to the SEC, um, as well as your investors, et cetera. So I think there's a lack of talent in the insurance brokerage world that understands alternative risks, captives, et cetera, that can also align that with the complications in the real estate world as well. So as you say, 2023 has been a very um, busy and expensive year. What is the outlook for the first quarter of 24, would you say? I'm going to put my psychic costume back on. <laughs> but no, we've actually gotten show on. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we've gone through a wind season relatively unscathed, which is what we all were sort of holding our breath for. Um, and I think from a reinsurance perspective, I think that market has somewhat stabilized. The challenge is last year after reinsurance renewals, not only did rate, rates increase substantially, 
but they had higher attachment points, meaning their deductibles to the insurer are much higher. So all of the losses that we've had this year hit directly the insurer's balance sheets. So they're going to be having to recoup some of that as well. The other issue that remains um, at the top of underwriters' minds is the subject of replacement cost valuations. Um, for many, many years, uh, replacement cost values were underreported. A big reason for that is the way that property insurance premium is calculated it is a specific rate times every $100 of replacement cost value um, or total insured value. And people would try to get away with as low as rate as possible. And then as we started to have these larger storms and insurers were paying out double the amount of replacement cost value that was reported, they started realizing we need to get a little bit more. We need to scrutinize this a little bit more. So we've had clients that have gone up 20, 30% that are still gonna need to go up another 10% this next year, maybe 20%. That's additive to any rate. So I do think rates are going to stabilize-ish with a lot of <laughs> a lot of asterisks around geography, loss history, et cetera. But I do think valuation is still gonna be an issue that we need to address early. The second issue is that the catastrophe models that we've been talking about, RMS is the 800 pound gorilla. They're what underwriters and brokers use most often. They came up with a new update based on all of the losses that have come out, which have increased model losses an average of 20, 30% and sometimes higher. So if the model losses are higher, that's going to increase the premium as well. Um, so those factors, I think, are a challenge, but I don't see us, you know, delivering the same type of news that we did last year of 40, 50, 60 percent um, on an overall basis. Again, we do need a couple of years of moderation and profitability to attract new capital. But I would say on the low end, 10 percent increases on the high end, depending on, you know, if you're in Florida, Texas, et cetera, it could be upwards of 25, 30 percent. That's Danielle Lombardo. She's the chair of Lockton's Global Real Estate Practice. I've left links to other coverage we've done on this subject in the show notes. There are other stories on our website too. We have a piece about the mounting costs for office landlords in the form of expirations of rate swaps and caps. We also have an amazing story about a Texas-based construction lender who claims it was the victim of a scam that involves a prominent Houston CEO. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.